Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Nicola Lacey, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you all here uh, on behalf of the LSE and in particular on behalf of the Inequalities Institute to this uh, panel on representing poverty and inequality, the legacy of Charles Booth. Um, I'm going to keep my introduction very brief because you've come to listen to our three fantastic speakers. Um, just a little bit of background. Many of you will know that at the LSE we're extremely lucky to have in our library collection a very large part of the Charles Booth's papers, including his maps and his notebooks. And these really were the foundation of a quiet, slow revolution connecting with the literary festivals theme in the social sciences and the way in which we think about, have access to, measure and represent poverty and inequality. And we thought that this was a very good topic for the literary festival because it afforded us an opportunity to think about these different ways in which poverty and inequality are represented in terms of, as is standard in the social sciences, categories and, and figures and facts, which of course Booth did, but also in terms of visual categories and in terms of narratives. And so we have an absolutely marvellous panel, and we're so grateful to the three of you for giving your time this evening. And I'm going to introduce the speakers very, very briefly in the order in which they're going to speak. Um, first of all, Professor Mary Morgan, my dear colleague here at LSE, is an economic historian. She's a vice president of the British Academy. Uh, she has written many, many very distinguished publications. She has a long-standing interest in how traps travel, tra how facts travel. Correct <laughs> <laughs> myself there. Uh, how how letters travel, <laughs> um, and in evidence. And she's an economic historian. Um, she's going to speak first, and then Joseph Bullman, a very distinguished uh, documentary filmmaker. Many of you will have seen his fantastic series. My Secret Streets, uh, then turned into a family-based second series, and now he's working on a further series on the north of England, So, uh, and using very much the, the Booth uh, maps as a starting point of his work. And Mary herself also uses Booth a lot in her teaching and her work. And then, last but definitely not least, Sarah Wise, a very distinguished historian. Uh, many of you will know her books, The Italian Boy, and then The Blackest Streets. She, too, has used the Booth archive as an inspiration and basis for some of her work. And she is now, intriguingly, working on how Booth may have influenced contemporary novelists. So we're absolutely delighted to have you here. Thank you. And Mary, would you like to start us off? So I want to talk about um, <clears throat> Charles Booth and um, the revolution in social sciences that he was associated with, and also the way in which his work uh, ushered in a sort of early version of the welfare state um, in Britain, something which we normally associate um, with uh, 1944 um, and the full welfare state. <clears throat> so I want to talk about Charles Booth as a social scientist. Um, his uh, picture is here. Um, he is um, a revolutionary social scientist in the sense that he created a whole set of ways of doing things for social science. Um, not on his own, of course, but he became the classic uh, sort of pioneer person to whom social scientists would turn when they thought about the development of the social survey method, 
the development of poverty mapping, uh, the notion of developing poverty classes, classes of different levels of poverty, um, for locating causes of poverty, and uh, above all, for measuring poverty in various different ways. So I want to talk about that uh, chunk of revolutionary work um, in some detail and then look at the outcome that came with the poverty lobby, which was using a lot of these findings after that. Um, so Charles Booth is a, um, a wealthy, uh, comes from a wealthy family of um, uh, shippers who, who uh, trade on the Liverpool South American uh, route uh, and the stereotype story is that he decided to stand for Parliament in Liverpool and didn't get into to Parliament but uh, discovered in the process something you'd think he should have already figured out that there were large chunks of Liverpool which were extremely poor. And for reasons which are not clear to me, but possibly one of our other panel know more about, um, he came to London and decided to sink a lot of his own family money into a huge survey of poverty in London, uh, a very, very large um, uh, project which he resulted in something like 17 volumes of uh, evidence about poverty in London, including this, the outcome of this social survey. Um, at the point he was doing this in the 1890s, um, where he, there's quite clearly a large class of urban poor without any social welfare. The social welfare system in Britain was primarily parish-based and therefore worked reasonably well if you, in the sense of it was active in rural areas but had pretty much broken down uh, when it came to urban areas. So the general view was that there was this poverty in the midst of plenty but the extent of poverty was unknown. Um, it was pretty much universally seen as a problem by the state officials, by the middle-class philanthropists, uh, by the statistical experts, uh, by social scientists and reformers, and there was two basic analyses of what this problem um, was. The um, charity social work um, uh, group, the philanthropists, uh, thought that if you were poor, it was your own fault. You were poor because you couldn't manage your income properly, you couldn't manage your household properly, so poverty was some problem of the individual, the individual had to be educated out of their bad ways and they would no longer be poor, so that was one kind of analysis. Um, and the other analysis associated with social science sort of reformers and social system reformers thought that the basic problem was the economic system um, and the way people were employed. Uh, and those, those were the two kind of binary positions. As I've said, this was an exemplary piece of social science has come to be regarded as and uh, created, a, in, in that sense, created a whole new strand, new ways of doing things in social science. <clears throat> um, and those two positions, uh, the social science versus the philanthropy version, are epitomized in this uh, contrasting portrait of Charles Booth and Beatrice Webb. Beatrice Webb coming from the middle class philanthropic, philanthropic side um, and being one of the founders of LSE, uh, <clears throat> along with um, George Bernard Shaw uh, and a group of Fabians, um, but she ended up working uh, with Booth um, on this project. <clears throat> um, so what I want to talk about is two chunks. One is the way we have a revolution in social science, and the second is the way, uh, second much more briefly, how that social science knowledge turns into an action sequence to change things that are going on um, before the First World War. So we're getting something like a welfare state in some form before the First World War um, due to a kind of quite multifaceted poverty lobby, lobby which comes out of Booth's 
um, social science work. And there's a process in which this is an observation process, which involves defining and classifying households in poverty, mapping poverty, aggregating the numbers up, disaggregating them, sampling them, and then trying to figure out the causes of poverty. So it's a very complex social science project, uh, um, but it has a lot of different aspects to it, which are, I think are very important. So the first step uh, he's interested in is trying to observe poverty and to think about which households are living in poverty. And he has what I tell my students is a huge advantage that they couldn't download any data from the web. They couldn't even get it from the government statistical services because the information about incomes, wages, rents, expenditure just weren't there. So it wasn't the case that he could go and find ready-made uh, numbers. And he used school visitors. School visitors uh, were people who visited every household uh, every so often, maybe once a year, maybe more often. And the reason school visitors visited each household was because children had to pay to go to school according to the income in the household. They had to be in school, but if their uh, parents were very poor, they would pay almost nothing but as their parents got richer or were apparently getting more income, they would have to pay more to go to school. Uh, These school visitors had a kind of beat, a bit like a policeman's beat, and they knew uh, the the people in their blocks. Um, And, of course, often several households would be in a house, so it was quite a complicated project to visit every household. And they were observers. They were looking at the household. They were looking at the house, the housing, the state of the housing, the state of the children. Were they well-clothed? Were they, did they look like they were well-fed? So this was a poverty observation project, um, looking at the healthiness, the housing, the clothing, and the destitution of the people that they were observing. So that was the main kind of observational uh, material, although it was supplemented with lots of other bits, um, census records, um, investigations of certain occupations, and what were, we might call local experts, the rent collectors, the policemen, charity workers, and, and anyone else who would be frequently going down um, those streets. <clears throat> um, from this um, poverty survey, which was every household in the east side of London and then streets uh, in the other areas of London, he developed a very thick definition of poverty. He didn't want to have one definition with one income level. He said, that just won't capture what I'm interested in because households are so variable. They have lots of different... Some have big numbers of children. Some have very small children. Some have uh, old-age households. Some are single-parent households. So he wanted to capture um, the state of the households uh, where being poor or... You know, the, the base sort of falling below a certain level, which was you needed to have sufficient for a decent independent life. Um, and if you were on the edge of that, you were very likely to fall below that uh, into the very poor class who um, lived in a state of chronic want. He ha- ended up with eight different classes, uh, well-off, middle class, and then six other classes, four of which counted as different classes of poverty. So it was a very thick definition, thick evidence about uh, the poverty and being able to put them into these different categories of poverty. So that, too, is a sort of new way of thinking about it. Not necessarily a new way of thinking, but, a, but clearly trying to classify these different problematic areas um, of, if you fell into poverty, where were you in this sort of levels of this? The important thing to know about uh, London or any city at this time in Britain uh, was that most work was not full-time. 
So you really needed to know about occupations, which is one of the things that were collected by school visitors, because the work patterns of most people in work were very varied uh, and not at all regular. If you were a house painter, you couldn't work in the winter because your paint wouldn't dry. If you were a dock worker, you went and stood at the dock gate and hoped to be picked. Maybe you were picked two days out of six. Uh, maybe it was less, maybe it was more. Lots of people were messengers or small-scale entrepreneurs who probably might only work two hours a day or something like that. So a lot of people were in something we would call casual work nowadays or, of course, a modern version of this, a zero-hours contract. Right, so there's lots of, um, lots of variation in occupations, but very few of them were fixed full-time um, uh, regular hourly wages. And he used that information to allocate... Uh, these households into the first poverty maps, which are these famous maps <coughs> in which uh, red is middle class, yellow <coughs> around the Bloomsbury area is upper class, um, and uh, <coughs> Mrs. Lincoln's in fields, and we are just here, and you can see that there's some black and dark blue. Black is the lowest, the poorest class, dark blue, and then through the blues um, is gradually getting, still classes of poverty, but gradually getting uh, slightly better off and you can see that quite a lot of that black and dark blue are mixed in amongst um, the reds. Um, <clears throat> these weren't the first ever maps for social science usage. There were previously there were um, health maps which tried to plot things like um, uh, diseases, but these were the first real poverty maps and the first ones to make good use of these colours to uh, decide to, to show you visually. Uh, the extent of poverty, not just the extent, but the distribution of poverty across the city. Um, <clears throat> adding up the households gave him 30.7% of households in poverty, which didn't actually make much impact. Um, what made the impact, I think, were the maps, the things that we know travelled well. Um, I think because they're visual, and not just visual, they contain a lot more information than me just saying 30.7% of households are in poverty. <coughs> so I think the, the reason why these really have travelled and remained in consciousness is to do with their greater information, but also because you can see at a glance a whole lot of stuff and not just have one single um, number in your head. So the thick information that he collected managed to be represented in a very thick way, lots of different kinds of evidence here, um, compared to this single number, which is a pretty thin piece of evidence. <clears throat> um, moving on from that, he actually took that apart, that, that list apart again, to look at individual numbers, individual households, from which he could tell different kinds of people in poverty. So not con just content with the 30.7% and the mapping, he used this to figure out what kinds of households had were really in these very poor groups. Were they households with lots of children, households with widows or widower heads, or were they married households, unmarried, and so forth? And then he took a smaller sample, again, a very sort of new step in social science research, to look at a particular sample of 4,000 households to look at, see whether he could figure out the causes of poverty. And here's one of the tables, not directly from his book, but one of the tables... Um, which picks out um, something wonderfully called the loafers. <laughs> so this is the two lowest classes of poverty. So the 4,000 households, he's got great poverty at classes A and B, and 4,000 of those, of the 4,000, 1,610 are in these two lower bits, the, low, the, the very poor. 
Four percent are loafers. And then the other category is this category that the charity workers were worried about. They're drunk or they have a thriftless wife or they're thriftless and drunk wife. <laughs> now, okay, so that's the group that the charity workers have fixed on that can be educated out of their drink. And if you look at them at 14 and 4, you've only got 18% of these classes of two bottom classes who are going to fit into this category that the charity workers have focused on. And most people are poor because they're either casual work, irregular work, or small profits, that is the economic system, or they have particular family circumstances, large families, um, illness, illness and large family, um, and too old to work. In other words, it's the economic system that is giving you the largest chunk, that's the social science reformers group, who have got them in their sights, and personal circumstances uh, which give rise to poverty. So here's a way in which he used that thick information to get back to the reasons households were in poverty because of the characteristics they had either personally or uh, because of the economic system. So that's a really um, important finding. Um, <clears throat> so what uh, Booth's um, study has showed is what we now know and take for granted, that poverty has this multidimensionality of aspect, it's multidimensional in cause, and it's systematic in the labour market and personal circumstances. And there's a looping effect that poverty causes poverty. So in a sense, you could say people probably knew this in the 19th century, but here it is that we really know it because the social scientist's work has really laid it out in a very evident way. Um, so I'm, let me just sort of launch on to the action sequence because I know I'm running out of time. Um, okay, so what happens as a result of this? Well, um, we, at the same time, we, we, there's generating and, and Booth's work is feeding into a poverty lobby which is beginning to be quite powerful in the late, the last decade of the 19th century and, and the period just before the First World War. And here I'm moving the, seat, the, the scene to two really important active, active people, one of whom is William, William Beveridge, who becomes um, director of the LSE, who's a social scientist, he's an economist, he's a quantifier, he's a numbers man, but he's also interacting with everyone else on the political scene. Behind the scenes and explicitly with the political system, people in the political system, he's writing columns for the morning newspapers, He's kind of everywhere. He's, if you look at the beverage papers, which we also have here in the library, he is so active and across all of these circles. And he intersects, he's one of these people who intersects between the academic side and the political side and the bureaucratic administrative state. And he acts with uh, Winston Churchill, uh, who, age 30 there, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Winston Churchill's just got his first uh, ministerial post at the Board of Trade, um, and he manages to persuade Winston Churchill to help him put some of these anti-poverty projects um, into, uh, on, onto the statute book. Um, <clears throat> so when you look at uh, what happens in that few years before the, the First World War, you can see that what's going on is that instead of having a welfare state where everyone gets a kind of, some kind of income supplement... What they're doing is picking off particular bits that the Booth Project has found are important. The state provision of old age pensions. I don't think most people realise that Winston Churchill introduced old age pensions, which is a bit of a surprise. But 
there it is. That's one that Booth was particularly concerned about and was lobbying for. Uh, setting up of local exchanges for unemployment, unemployment exchanges, the National Act 1909, copying Germany, which already had them. The development of fixing minimum wages for sweatshop labour in certain industries. That's the match girls strike and all that. Um, the beginning of state insurance for sickness and unemployed people, 1911. Again, limited coverage, but uh, sickness and unemployment but, uh, exchange, um, insurance begins there. And the beginning of slum, well, not the beginning, slum clearances are going on all the time, but the development of model buildings on health grounds. Um, that's particularly germane here because, if you recall, I said on the big map we were here, surrounded by this dark blue and black, and as a result um, of slum clearances, the Old Witch got built, Kingsway got built, and we are still here on the edge of Lincoln's Inn Bills, right, in this building. Um, but you can see the map of what was dark blue has been completely built through um, by this development just before the First World War. If you walk up Drury Lane, uh, you can see on the right-hand side of Drury Lane as you go north, uh, some model buildings for the working classes, the Peabody Trust Estate, which was already there before this big uh, poverty lobby and this uh, clearing up of this clearing out of this dark blue area. Um, so going back to this, this is kind of a mini revolution, right? To 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 think about all these different bits. If you add them up, what a difference they could be making. But su surprised that actually, in a way, they've always been just sort of afterthoughts in the history of the welfare state rather than seen as this package uh, which comes out of this uh, poverty lobby. And here's, uh, sorry, more explicitly I should have shown before, here's the Old Rich, and you can see if you walk around this area, lots of little side alleys. Well, that's the side alleys that were there in that black-blue design, and they've been, some of them have been kept, you know, if you go around the Old Rich, you, you can get through these. Right? So some of them are still there. <coughs> Uh, okay, Booth's agenda still matters, of course. It matters to me as a social scientist because that way of thinking about the problem, that is, you've got a multidimensional problem, you've got to think about all the bits and try and get into all the bits, and you need to take account of that complexity when you're thinking about a phenomenon. And that was certainly what was going on for the Millennium Development Goals, which were supposed to make poverty history. Well, they didn't quite, but they went some long way along it. And we now have what I think is a you know, grandchild of Booth, which is the Sustainable Development Goals, a slightly different field, the development field rather than the poverty field. But again, looking, thinking about the problem as a multidimensional problem from which you have to pick out lots of possible targets or goals that you can do some action on rather than trying to solve it as a generic problem uh, all at once. Okay, I apologise, I've run over. <clears throat> okay. That's perfect, thank you. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Joe Bullman. Um, so, when was it? A few years ago now, I had the um, amazing idea to update the Booth survey, the sort of magisterial uh, survey that he'd done in the late Victorian period, as a television series for BBC Two. And uh, so that's, if, uh, if anyone hasn't seen it, hands up, has anyone seen it here? It was called The Secret History of Our Streets. Oh, well, that's good. I'm going to make you watch a little clip to introduce it anyway. So it's kind of like Brexit. Get used to it. Just watch the clip. So. 
London in 1886. Then the largest city in human history and the center of the known world. With its self-importance, its dirt, its wealth and awful poverty, it seems a mystery to us now. It was a different world, an entirely different world. But there is a guide to this human jungle. Charles Booth, Victorian London's social explorer. Booth produced a series of pioneering maps that color-coded the streets of his London according to the ever-shifting class of its residents. Booth's maps are like scans, x-rays that reveal to us the secret past beneath the skin of the present. If people knew how many cattle was killed there, I don't think I'd live there. <laughs> he wanted his maps to chart stories of momentous social change. And those houses were the lowest of the low. The ebb and flow between enormous wealth and terrible poverty. How easily desirable or well-to-do neighborhoods could descend into the haunts of the vicious and semi-criminal and back again. Now the maps can help us reveal the changes that have shaped all our lives and made the story of the streets the story of us all. Oh my goodness, the old toilet's gone. <laughs> Uh, so that gives you a, a feel of what the uh, series looked like. Um, fascinating talk from, from Mary, and, and, and it's really interesting to hear you talk about poverty and that aspect of Boo's work. But we, at one point, maybe you guys know better than me, at one point we tried to make an estimate about how many streets they'd walked up and down. It took them 17 years to make this survey. And we thought it might be something like 10,000 streets even then. It was, London was already an unknowable city. It was so vast and rapidly developing all the time in the 19th century. Um, and when you look at the size and the scale of it, 17 volumes, an endless amount of work, there are actually all sorts of things in it which aren't just about poverty. It extends, you know, he actually went, they went up all down the posh streets and they had, as Mary said, they initially they hand-painted these maps, uh, yellow for the servant keepers, with all these different gradations, all the way down to black, which stood for vicious and semi-criminal, which is the poorest category that Mary was talking about. Um, and actually, we looked at it, and we kind of thought, actually, they had this methodology. They, I think they literally walked up and down every street as much as they could, and it took them all this time. But they didn't, there wasn't really, to my way of seeing it anyway, a single thesis that they were trying to establish. There wasn't a theory that they were going out and trying to prove. And one of the things, some people talk about booths, you know, the categories they used as being a bit moralizing and obviously a bit late Victorian. But actually, one of the things that methodology did was open up uh, the work just to let the voices of the people of the streets come through. Sometimes it came through. There's an amazing section in one of the volumes called um, Sample Streets, and an English clergyman is going through a series of tenement buildings just off Drury Lane, just around the corner from here. And um, he meets a lot of what he calls Irish Roman Catholics. And he gets variously told to F off, um, chased down the stairs and punched in the face. And you, you kind of see, you catch a glimpse in these very deep, he goes room to room. Everyone lives, every family lives in a single room. And you really catch a glimpse of the atmosphere of this place at the time. Finally, he comes across one room where there are, they open the door, there's not much furniture, just two chairs, there's a 19-year-old girl sitting on a chair and her mother sitting on a chair. And the room 
is bedecked in flowers all, over, all across the floor. And the girl's dad had died, and he was so well-liked that just everyone in the neighbourhood brought them flowers. And, and seeping through this incredible work of social science, there's, there's actually real... You catch glimpses of the way ordinary working-class people live. So, 120 years later, 130 years what it was, we decided we were going to try and update this survey somehow by taking six archetypal streets and trying to tell the story of what happened in that street from Booth's time to the present day, and we updated the maps in our own Hackney TV way. Um, uh, and we kind of inherited that methodology. So we basically just said, we're going to go to some streets and find out what's happened to them, which is very unusual in television. In television, especially in history documentaries, what you do, you know, some researchers find a story... Uh, they, they sell it to their bosses, their bosses sell it to their story, and you have this story agreed, you know, a narrative, say, about, I don't know, servants or the six wives of Henry VIII or whatever it is. You have it agreed, and then researchers go out to stand up the story. So you have a thesis, you have a story that people go out and look for. We actually just went onto the streets in a kind of clueless fashion and spent many, many months talking to the residents of these streets, and it became quite alarming for the BBC. They would say, what, what are you doing? What are the stories? And we would say, we don't know. We're just talking to the people. And it took us a really long time. It was a very complex uh, kind of journey to sort of get to know the residents and the former residents and meet all the old boys and all the old ladies and pull their stories out of them. Um, but gradually, something started to happen. And we couldn't really see it at the time because we were so sort of in the thick of it. And it was that the stories that they were telling us, they were just coming up from the pavements, you know, these stories. The stories that the people were telling us seemed a lot different from the kind of ways of thinking about the past that you normally see in your average TV documentary. And I think it was because they weren't coming from the top, they were coming up from the people. Um, and it got quite surprising. So I did a film on Deptford High Street, and there's a guy on that street... John Price, his, his family had been there for literally generations as market traders. Now he's got this shop, a pound shop. No one buys anything in the shop. They just get orange crates and sit around and talk all day. And he said to me one day, see that road over there opposite? That was where I was born. He said, Owl Street, Owl Street. They tore it down because it was too violent. <laughs> and we said, too? they tore it down because it was too violent? Uh, but it piqued our interest because all the streets running into Deptford High Street, which is a bit decrepit, but beautiful old sort of Victorian, Georgian high street, were utterly, you know, depressing sort of 60s and 70s blocks that were already falling apart. So we started to look into that story, and um, this is the story that we came up with. Uh, so this is a slightly longer clip, but you'll get an idea of the kind of stories that people told us. <coughs> nice clean front doors. Nothing could ever happen to you, me, my cousin Pauline, all that, because your family all lived around you. And because your family lived around you, if there was any trouble, they all ganged up together as a family. So if Dad had trouble, Uncle John had come across, Uncle Jack had got to come across. And of course, they risk their lives because you're in trouble. The power lay in the hands of the Environmental Health Officers, because it's the Environmental Health Officers who went round determining whether things were slums. It was very difficult to challenge what they were saying. They were the word of God. If the environmental health officer was saying they were slums, then they were slums. 
And that's what everybody went along with, and that was being modern, and that was being 20th century. Will this mean that some of us have got to move, then? Yes, I'm afraid some of you will have to. And the point of the inspectors look round is to see how clean they are. It all goes down on the form. They had a form they filled in, in which they made what you might call social and moral remarks about the family. They talked about the family's lifestyle. They made an appointment to say somebody would be coming round. Oh, a lot of the people said, well, I won't be in for a start. And you go down and say, but if they think they're getting me out, you know, that's how it would be. But eventually, the council did come round and see what property you had, looking all over it. I remember the man coming to my mum's and saying, what was you thinking of doing here? And she said, well, I'm going to try and put a bathroom in if I can. She said, because if you think we can stay longer, because we've got a bathroom, we'll do it. These houses never had bathrooms in. That's all they never had. There was three bedrooms, four bedrooms, two living rooms, downstairs. There was plenty of room to put a bathroom, but they never had bathrooms. And because they never had bathrooms, they called them slums. I have to be clear with you that a lot of the houses that were cleared really had to be cleared. I mean, they were too far gone. They had terrible rising damp. Uh, there were problems in the structure of the houses. Um, uh, deep, deep damp basements, which we had a whole lot in depth, including on the north side of Reginal Road. I mean, they were, whichever way you looked at them, they were little damp houses. It's really, really nice people living in some of them. But they were little damp houses. But they weren't slums. There's, there's places over at Fulham, similar type of houses are just as old. They didn't pull them down, or I'm better seeing. And some parts of Chelsea, the houses are older. But because it's where it is, and they have gotten into a toilet now, or some of them they wouldn't admit it, but there was only a third or fourth bedroom being converted. They just wanted doing up. They're old houses. It wasn't a problem. The ones they left a lot of problem. Are they making half a million pounds and a million pound now? You know, it's ridiculous. And they're, they're going to be there for another hundred years. They just won't fall down, will they? The environmental health officers were not surveyors or architects. They were looking at condi the conditions in which people were living. And they very often made, made sweeping judgments about the buildings when actually they didn't actually know a lot about buildings. They, know much, they knew much more about the conditions in which people were living. And seen from the social heights of professional people who plan slum clearance and design new buildings, one working class street looks much like another. In fact, the style of life lived in them varies from extremes of respectability to shiftlessness and downright criminality. November 1964, environmental health officers condemn Reginald Road as unfit for human habitation. The Price and Ovenall families are issued with compulsory purchase orders and offered around £1,600 for their homes. Along with many others, they refuse to leave. Happened to Aunt Bob first. She lived down Howe Street and they pulled all down round her. And she lived in this house in Howe Street on her own. Just rubble all around. It's come wasteland and the house was sitting in the middle. And of course, you know, you had 
where they pull down, then you suddenly got vermin everywhere, haven't you? Nobody wants to go down there overnight because all the lights are out. Next week, we're pulling down next door. And now they pull down next door and someone cuts the pipe. Now what happens? Now you've got no water. Now she becomes slums. They then create the slums. And of course now they've knocked down next door. Now half of your roof is open to the elements. <laughs> and now the rain comes in and your ceiling falls down. Now, now the bloke comes round the value house and he says, oh, the ceiling's fell down and the wall's all damp and we ain't going to give you no money. Now how do you feel? How do you feel with that man who's told you your house is now falling to bits because of what they've done on either side of you? We was in our house for about two years with everything knocked down around us because we didn't want to move. Any idea of staying by them, was that? So that was, that was John Price, who, whose family had been there for generations, uh, and they were all scattered to the winds as a result of this slum clearance uh, movement in Deptford. As it turned out, we investigated a bit further. As it turned out, the houses they pulled down off of Deptford High Street here weren't slums at all. Uh, one of my colleagues found in the bottom of a cardboard box, 50 years on, at the London Metropolitan Archives, uh, some handwritten notes from the environmental health officers whose job it was to declare all these streets as slums before they could pull them down. The health officers said, these are lovely, structurally sound, working-class houses. We don't need to pull them down. They pulled them down anyway um, because there was, a, there was a mania. There was a modernising mania. And uh, they wanted to get them down. And uh, so everyone in Deptford, very tight-knit community, who hitherto had really been living, it's hard to imagine now, really been living like the way Italians live or maybe Asian people live in these very ex tight-knit extended families on these streets. They were scattered to the four winds. And we got there 50 years, something like that, after this had happened to these people. No one, not one journalist, not one filmmaker, not one novelist, as far as I know, not one academic. They'd ever come and ask them about what happened to them. We were the first people. We didn't even know what we were asking. It was just John said that strange comment one day in the shop. And over the months, we bumbled along and we, and we realised that this was the story. We thought the story was entirely something else. Um, so no one had ever asked them. And then we started to think about the general phenomenon of slum clearance, or at least this round of it, because Mary made the point it started happening... A long time ago. I know Sarah's book is about one of the first rounds of it. In the 60s and 70s, I think one of the estimates is something like 1.5 million homes were pulled down on the say-so of these Victorian and Georgian homes, of these guys that didn't know anything about the structure of buildings. They just, ah, oh, kind of, oh, don't like the look of those people. They look a bit feckless. We'll pull their street down. Um, and if you... People would always say to us in this story, you talk to the Oldens, and they'd walk down the street and they'd say, yeah, my nan lived there, uh, my other nan lived on the top floor, my auntie lived in the middle floor with her kids, and we lived, you know, on the ground floor, there's seven of us or whatever it was, and you got a picture a lot of times of three, four, five people, whole families in single rooms. As it turned out, Deptford was becoming quite a prosperous place with its market uh, in the 1960s, so maybe there were fewer people in the houses. But 1.5 million homes, I'm not very good at maths, but if you say there's 10 people living in each of those houses in the 1960s, 
Isn't that 15 million people forcibly removed from their homes? And if it's six to a household, say, isn't that nine million? I really, I got CSE ungraded for maths, but if it's a modern living situation, it's four to a household. That's still six million people. Most of them moved because they just pulled the rest of the street down. It was untenable to go on living there. And so they sent them out to these tower blocks and these sort of edge of town estates where the old patterns of kinship and neighborliness and friends and a sense of history and controlling the young men because on those old streets they would just say to the boys, we know your mum, you know, and that was enough oftentimes, you know. Um, those things didn't just disappear, they were, sh- they were smashed to smithereens. And in, to my way of thinking anyway, the working class of Britain are still recovering from this incredibly traumatic event that happened to them in the 60s and 70s. I, I actually, my own personal theory, that this is the biggest single event in the working class experience in the last century. I think it's even bigger than the wars and the emergence of the Labour Party and you know, the emergence of industry and the decline of industry and the emergence of a precarious workforce. I think this is a mass forced migration on historic grounds, probably only comparable to the original clearances in the English countryside. You know, probably exaggerating a bit here, and the, and the Norman conquests where they stole every inch of England. This is, could be, you know, 15, 16 million people moved against their will and split up from all their families. And I believe that we're still dealing with the ramifications of that. And it was all, as a result, when you look at it, there was a kind of elite, upper-class mania for modernisation and money. Because a lot of it was to do with the developers. It was greed. People were making a lot of money by pulling down these streets and putting up new blocks. So the question that always occurs to me, and uh, you know, I know Mary's written this fascinating book about why ideas travel, is why isn't this discussed more often? Like, I know there are some very honourable exceptions. I think one or two people, you know, they're here today. But it's just not something you read about. I think it should be as, you know, we should be, we should be as familiar with this episode in our history as the First World War. But we, it's, not, you know, it's not really part of the culture. And I know Mary will have a much more sophisticated answer. My guess is, is that it didn't happen to upper and middle class families. And didn't impinge on their consciousness much, so they haven't written about it much. And the people of Deptford didn't have the wherewithal to tell that story. They just didn't, you know, none of them are journalists or, you know, novelists, and and so it just sat there unknown to most people. I'm not saying we were the first people to discover it. That would be arrogant. And I know some people, uh, and I know Sarah has written about an earlier wave of it. And so when you're thinking about inequality, I'm against the end now, I think. Is that good? Well, it just seems to me that um, sometimes in our country, even the categories we use to understand inequality are, in fact, imposed from the top. They're imposed downwards, the paradigms. You know, th- this, in this episode, these people here, and I know it happened right across the country, because wherever we go and do research, we hear a very similar story. They were never consulted. Uh, they had absolutely no way of resisting it. They were simply told, it's been decided that this is best for you. And once it had happened, it was virtually forgotten, but hardly ever discussed. 
And to me, this is, I know this may be, that's maybe a crude characterization of it. Um, But to me, I think if you actually, we have sometimes, you know, an alienated and atomized and resentful working class population. And I think if you want to actually really think about deeply about the reasons for it, look no further. And if you want to, genuinely, I think if you want to think about the, this may be an exaggeration again. Think about the underlying reasons for Brexit, and you could start here. That's, that's, uh, that's my opinion. So I, I would say that we, it was quite by accident, because we just got this commission by the BBC, and once they'd given us the money, it was too late. But it, it was quite by accident, but we just basically started to go to the streets and talk to the people, and we spent a long time listening to them. And over time, the confusion sort of congealed into these stories that rose up. But I wonder whether the way ahead to, you know, if we think about now, you know, the zones of sacrifice in globalization, we think about zero hours contract, we think about what's happening to people in our country. I wonder whether one way to actually move forward is to actually just go and listen to them and let their voices. You can't have one chat with them because they won't tell you what they think in the first instance, but just listen to them for a while and let their voices rise up. And I think, actually, even though Booth, you know, there's all this moralism and there's the, the vicious and semi-criminal and, the, you know, those heavy religious overtones to some of the work, that methodology was actually a very democratic methodology. They just went up and down every street and tried to find out what kind of people lived there. And I think it's an amazing thing that doesn't exist for any other city in the world. And uh, I, I think Charles Booth started something that we should try and um, honour and continue. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joseph. Sarah. Um, so in 1914, sociologist Victor Branford wrote that while Booth's life and labour of the people in London was the best known of poverty surveys, it was in fact the least used. And four decades later, not much had changed, and sociologist Ruth Glass wrote in 1955, Booth is not so much read as he is admired. The impenetrability of Booth's 17 volumes, published between 1889 and 1903, led to his work having the peculiar status of being a classic text, as historian Asa Briggs put it, that few people had actually read in any depth. The true appreciation of Booth's life and labour volumes didn't seriously begin until our own lifetimes. And the careful interpretative work by historians Rosemary O'Day and the late David Englander in the early 1990s kick-started the scholarly rediscovery of Booth's monumental project, why is this? Why should it be that a work that can be, a work can be viewed simultaneously as hugely important and yet rarely read? The first biography of Booth was published in 1960 by sociologist Thomas Symey, some 44 years after Booth's death. And I think that Symey got it right when he explained the conundrum in this way. He stated that on a personal level, Charles Booth was, was too modest a man And that lured his contemporaries into failing to appreciate his true originality. What's more, said Simey, Booth's work didn't appear to have deep philosophical or theoretical bases. In fact, he did have both, but they are only obliquely 
presented in Life and Labour, and they're not made overt, um, which is why so many people missed it at the time. Simey continued, half a century after the inquiry was completed, it has become plain that it represents one of the first attempts to apply the methods of the natural sciences to the solution of the social problems of an industrial society. Booth had been valued as a statistician, not as a sociologist, and Simey believed that this was incorrect, that Booth was a great sociologist. He just wasn't the shouty, look-at-me type. So for my second book, The Blackest Streets, I made huge use of the 17 volumes, and the LSC website notwithstanding, yeah. I found it extremely difficult uh, to navigate life and labour. Uh, but I finally cracked it after about three years. <laughs> now, for what it's worth, I've put up on my website my own personal contents page to Life and Labour, which I assembled for my students, so some of you might find that helpful if you are thinking of diving into Booth. Uh, it's kind of like a user's, a user's guide. Um, my book is about what was supposedly the worst slum in London in the 1880s, and I went looking for the widest possible variety of voices about this much maligned location, the Old Nickel, which stood until the early 1890s just behind Shoreditch High Street. Um, and what amazing luck. Not only did Booth and his team of investigators supply names, addresses, wage levels, and information on the religious outlook of many of the 6,000 residents of the Old Nickel, he himself also went there, and he wrote up his own amazing passages about wandering around these streets. Um, and his own personal observations put onto the record aspects of the life of the poor that I've never read anywhere else. Just one tiny example of many. Uh, Joseph's mentioned um, a couple. Um, it's the moment when Booth is walking along an East End street and an itinerant barrel organ player, I'm quoting, strikes up a waltz and girl bypasses and children in the gutter begin to dance merrily. And he added that grown men would also join in sometimes and two young men would waltz together if all other potential partners were taken. <laughs> and again, I'm quoting Booth directly. A couple of ragged, perhaps even barefooted children dancing conscientiously, the latest three-step waltz, are a pleasant sight to see. So it's just absolutely packed with this kind of um, rich anecdotal uh, detail. But now I'm going to shift gears mood-wise and I'm perhaps going to risk mass unpopularity with my view that the poverty map, um, which has so overshadowed um, Booth's written rhyme, uh, findings, um, has been to the detriment of the latter. Now, while it's an obvious labour of love, the map, and the product of painstaking work and a wish to gain useful knowledge of and to impose order on, an unruly and hard-to-fathom city, the map doesn't really tell us much about actual lived human experience or class relations. The simplification required for a graphic representation of wealth distribution undercuts the extraordinarily complex findings and ambivalent conclusions of Booth's written work. I could go further and compare the map to the problem of trying to have a discussion of any great value on Twitter in just 140 characters. Um, in a world where time is short, attention spans limited, the bullet point, the meme, the tweet mentality seizes on things that appear to present 
complex findings in a quickly graspable way. And Booth himself, in fact, recognised the limits of his map, particularly with regard to trying to depict character as a facet of socioeconomic failure or success. He wrote, At best, the graphic expression of an almost infinite complication and endless variety of circumstances cannot but be very imperfect, and a rainbow of colour could not accomplish it completely. Here and there, an attempt has been made to give a little more elasticity to the system by combining the colours. Dark blue will frequently be found with a black line upon it to indicate that great poverty is mixed with something worse. It must be borne in mind that every street is more or less mixed in character. Now, this insistence on linking moral failure or character flaws to economic destiny means that, for instance... A yellow street with black edging would have been required to reflect the high figures for these years of both white-collar crime and alcoholism within the so-called respectable family. Um, But no such colour designation existed to show where a character flaw had led to financial success. I know I'm sounding facetious, but it absolutely struck me. How could you render a street where a person made wealthy from renting out slum property lived? Presumably that would be red or yellow with a black edge. But the map has got no such colour scheme. Um, Booth did write, Class A must not be confounded with the criminal classes. Every social grade has its criminals. But despite his protestations, morality to Booth and his team only really mattered when it caused or somehow interacted with poverty. Um, So, for the second half of my presentation, I'm going to talk about what I see as one of Booth's more obscure legacies, his influence on English fiction. I teach a course on slum fiction, um, that's books published uh, between the mid-1880s and the outbreak of the 1418 war, and pretty much all of them set in London. There are a couple that are up north, but pretty much it's a London genre. I believe slum fiction gained huge momentum from the publication of Life and Labour. And while, as I've said, most people did not work their way diligently through the volumes themselves, nevertheless, the extracts that made it into the press and the concepts and approaches pioneered by Booth formed a major part of the late 1880s and 1890s zeitgeist. I'm going to talk briefly about four late 19th century novels which I believe are either directly or indirectly a response to Booth in some way. Um, There was a real sea change in fiction during the 1880s. This was a hugely experimental time in all the arts, um, which has been overshadowed by modernism coming just slightly later. But what we see in each of the books I'm going to mention is that conventional ideas of plot, character, narrative voice and point of view are starting to break up. Literary conventions are starting to be seriously challenged. Um, George Gissing, who incidentally was the only English novelist that Charles Booth thought had much worth, uh, put it this way in 1898... It is a thankless task to write of such a man as Charles Dickens in disparaging phrase, but so great a change has come over the theory and practice of fiction in the England of our times that we must needs treat of Dickens as, in many respects, antiquated. 
Literary critic Jane Findlater, in her 1904 article, The Slum Movement in Fiction, identified the cultural shift that had taken place in these terms. She wrote, The moral is extinct. We now recognise the uselessness of asserting that good always triumphs in the end, or of denying that the wicked are often much more prosperous than the righteous. So we've stopped writing stories to that effect. One of the reasons for the invigoration of fiction from the 1880s onwards came from the fantastic journalism, social investigation and governmental reports that were being published about the state of the urban poor and Booth's survey really marks the height of this sociological influence. Literary scholar PJ Keating goes so far as to say that fiction writers didn't really come on board with slum fiction until the social groundwork, as he calls it, um, had been laid by these non-fiction investigators. And one feature that's noticeable in most of these works is a blurring of the lines between fiction and fact, storytelling and journalism um, that today, um, I think, is far less common in the world of books. Um, when we pick up a book today, we're fairly certain as to whether it's presenting itself as a novel or as a work of non-fiction. Where there is any blurring, say, for instance, on a novel that's based on a true story, I do think the marketing departments of publishers try to make this clear. And that's very much not the case in the late 19th century. The so-called sociological novel was also hugely influenced by the arrival from France of Le Realisme, uh, the most, uh, most famous exponent of which was Émile Zola, whose works were in fact so true to life that they were banned in Britain and one publisher was imprisoned for publishing an English-language edition of Zola's uh, La Terre. Uh, this happened in 1889, the year in which Booth's first volume was published. One critic denounced um, Zola's naturalism as putrid, um, while another declared his works to be sculptured slime. Mm -hmm. um, Zola's own manifesto about what he hoped to achieve with his experimental novels um, cited his belief in the scientific observation of facts about life as it's really lived, not as how some romancer or fabulist wished that it was lived. Um, he believed that the new fiction should rely on an objective study of social environment, just as scientists based their findings on empiricism, close observation, um, and experiment. So just because of time, I'm going to pull out four late 19th century novels that reflect the mood, uh, language, and mindscape of Booth's life and labour and speak uh, briefly about them. Firstly, uh, In Darkest London by Margaret Harkness, which has only really recently been rescued from oblivion along with Harkness's other novels and her journalism, literally just in the last, the last three or four years, literary scholars have really discovered Harkness and her importance uh, in late 19th century literature, but also politics. She knew absolutely everyone uh, in, in East London in the political scene. Uh, this was Harkness's third novel, and it was published in 1889. And like all her work, it was published under the masculine pseudonym John Law, L-A-W. Exactly, you know, really authoritative. Um, this is how she actually looked. That's John Law. Um, it's by no means a stylistically accomplished novel. In fact, so technically inept is it that at times you actually do get lost. Um, 
which is quite rare, actually, in fiction, to just actually not know who's talking and where you are. But, um, and the plot, such as it is, is hackneyed. However, it does make bold experiments with voice and with point of view. And more than almost any other late Victorian novel I've read, In Darkest London takes its readers on a comprehensive tour of the institutions and meaningful locations in London in the troubled 1880s. And not just East London, some of the most dramatic episodes take place in Covent Garden, the area around Shelton Street, Macklin Street and Drury Lane, which on Booth's map show up uh, as black as anything in the East End. I'd go so far as to say that if anyone were to ask me to recommend a concise introduction to London poverty in the 1880s, I would name certain chapters of In Darkest London. There really isn't much uh, that she's left out. Harkness was related to Charles Booth's wife, Mary, and was already tremendously well acquainted with the poor of East London from her early career as a nurse and subsequently as a journalist. She also lived for a time in a working-class block of flats uh, near the Tower of London. She was a reporter on the British Weekly newspaper, and that publication's column on the conditions of the poor was often written by her. She was immensely disappointed that Charles Booth overlooked her when he was assembling his team of investigators for life and labour. And it's therefore possible to read Harkness's three London novels as her own attempt at a comprehensive survey of the state of the London poor. She'd been excluded from the methodical, wide-ranging and properly funded survey being undertaken by Booth, so here was her unofficial account in response. There's a huge crossover between Harkness's non-fiction and her novel, with many of the incidents she witnessed appearing in both the British Weekly and in In Darkest London. And the blurring of the line uh, between realistic fiction and novelistic (laughs) journalism has never been more obvious than with this book. Um, Secondly, Arthur Morrison's 1896 novel, A Child of the Jago. The Jago being an extremely thinly disguised old nickel slum. The unflinching depiction of violence in A Child of the Jago caused massive controversy at the time of publication and led to accusations that Morrison was attempting a Zola-esque assault upon the sensibilities of his English reading public, which he strongly denied. Um, We know that Morrison studied Booth's writings because he said so, um, and more than one critic at the time pointed out that a child of the Jago was imbued with features of Booth's writing. Here is um, Arthur Morrison after he'd made it at home in Loughton in Essex, every inch the sort of fin de siècle dilettante with a cigarette on. Um, There's one more strong link between Booth and a child of the Jago. Morrison had been invited into the slum to write about it by charismatic Anglican priest Father Arthur Osborne Jay of Holy Trinity Old Nickel Street, whose own three non-fiction books about his church work in the Nickel contain pretty much all the incidents and some of the characters that feature in A Child of the Jago. It's not going too far to say that A Child of the Jago is a novelisation of Jay's views of his parishioners. And it's Father Jay's own curate who had helped to supply Booth and his team with the data from which he compiled the old nickel section of Life and Labour. Booth, by the way, um, found that 35% of people in East London were living in chronic poverty. But in the old nickel, he found the highest level of all at 83%. 
Um, thirdly, we have number five, John Street by Richard Whiting, a phenomenal success in its day, outselling just about everything uh, and making its 59-year-old author into a celebrity, uh, now long forgotten and almost completely unread, um, which is very sad, I think, because uh, I find that very unusual because I think it's an outstanding achievement. I really haven't ever read anything like it. The novel combines elements of fairy tale romance with hard-headed satire, plus a convincing sociological picture of London life. It has the fantasy eclair glitter of Oscar Wilde, yet Whiting also turns his fire on just such aesthetes, dilettantes and dandies as part of his savage attack on the upper classes. As far as I'm aware, it's the first English, though not American, novel that features the plutocracy as a phenomenon. Um, number five is an overcrowded multiple occupancy dwelling and in each room there is someone who represents the huge range of people who comprise the labouring poor of London. Um, so we have a socialist, an anarchist, a conservative supporting imperialist, an elderly Jewish man, Nance the downtrodden factory hand and the magnificent heroic flower girl Tilda um, who um, George Bernard Shaw completely nicked for Eliza Doolittle, totally nicked, and um, Whiting hated him for the rest of his life as a reason. <laughs> so Whiting pre also presents subversive, savage snapshots of how the whole colonial racket works. And I did wonder whether he was slightly sending up Charles Booth's mechanistic diagrammatic poverty maps when the narrator draws a diagram for us of Channel A conducting all the capitalised produce of the world into B, which is the breeches pocket of the upper class. The produce then makes its way back to its source through channel C, which is the desire for luxury. And he calls uh, this diagram swag. Finally, we have The Hooligan Nights by Clarence Rook, published in 1899, following the fictionalised exploits of Alf Hooligan, a young ne'er-do-well from Lambeth, written as a fly-on-the-wall series of walks and talks by the journalist Rook. They amble around Lambeth and central London by night, and Rook talks to him and observes him. Rook's portrait of Alf is, to my mind, much more subtle and shocking than, for example, Arthur Morrison's portrait of the Jago residents because of the understatement that Rook uses as a stylistic mode. The prose, as with a sociological study, is calm and steady, but every so often there's a dynamite flash that reveals the hidden horror and madness within Alf. So we have such seemingly throwaway lines as, Alf rarely drinks, but when he does, he lights a fire in the middle of the floor and tries to burn the house down. <laughs> now, I'm not aware whether Booth read any of these novels. As I've said, he only liked George Gissing. Uh, and, if, and if he did, whether he would have taken any credit uh, for his influence on them. But if you get the chance, um, do have a look at them. All of them except in Darkest London have been digitised. You can easily find them online um, and read them and see what you think. Um, and on that note, I'll finish. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you all. And thank you also for absolutely impeccable timekeeping which leaves us with a good 15 minutes for questions so I'd like to open the floor I'd like to ask you if I may to briefly say who you are keep your question brief I'm going to take three questions and then let the panel respond to each of them that's 
okay. And there is a, uh, a microphone for, for the questions. So who would like to? We start with you, and then you, and then you. Hi, thanks. Um, I was really interested in um, Joseph's talk about the street, and I'm interested in what we can learn and from this process of speaking to people on the street um, and what Booth did. Because the things which are happening now to estates in Lambeth and Westminster and all over London, it's exactly the same as what you were talking about in the 60s, with whole communities being broken up and sent out, not just to different parts of London, different parts of the country. Um, so I'm just wondering if instead of treating it as a great historical artifact, whether we can actually pick it up and use it actively now. Thank you. Thank you. We've got, we got two, wonderful. Thank you. Hello, I'm Andrew Rickson. I'm a public health doctor and I make and use maps about inequality. Um, and I was just thinking, um, you know, it's been, it was hugely influential, the map you described as a, a way of changing opinion brought in the, uh, in, in the sort of welfare state. It's a little ironic. I don't think we'd be allowed to collect that information and display that information at that level anymore. And therefore, uh, perhaps we don't have as persuasive tools now as we did then. Thank you. And the... Yeah, great. Thanks. Yeah. I was just thinking of uh, how it's coloured-coded. Oh, excuse me. My name's Samuel, and I'm a writer. Um, and if the, if the colours were changed the other way round, so with the blue, with the yellow, it, you start at the bottom and work up, and, you know, so the darker colours were up to the wealthy side, how that would have, would have changed the concept of how people were actually viewed, you know, and how that actually feeds into our, our sort of concepts of different groups of people as well. Thank you so much. So, who would like to take those? I can take the, the yeah. first one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, I mean, my hunch is, I don't know if this is right, but I know that the Oxford professor, social geographer Danny Dorling, says that on current trends, we're set to become the most unequal country in the world by 2020. And so there are vast divisions in our country now. Um, I don't know if they're being dramatically and adequately enough mapped, you know, on, on, a, on a granular level. And I think that what I was trying to suggest, you know, embarrassingly in the presence of too much more learned people about Booth than me, but I was trying to suggest that it was a kind of an open-ended methodology because in one sense they did just walk up the streets and try to find out who was on it. And I think we need to do more of that. And I think the one lesson that we learned from our series was that you have to spend a long time. We spent, I, I mean, maybe a year on each street just hanging around basically getting paid for it and uh, eventually you know these stories emerge but I think that's the thing I think if you go into so if you go to South Wales you know one of our zones of sacrifice and you know with a lot of ideas and you have a day there what you're going to learn is what you all the categories and paradigms you already have but if you were to go to these places and just spend some time and listen like these amazing novelists were doing that, that Sarah was talking about I think we might learn more about our country maybe I can Yes. You know, I think you know, the slum clearance and destruction of communities is, you know, doesn't start with Booth. It goes back Absolutely. before and it goes on after. And you know, we're the manifestations of every generation we get these. Mm. Um, but I think this is a really interesting point about what level of granularity you could now represent these things in. Because I think that is a, that's an, an important point about how people find out about and think about 
um, these elements. So if you go on a, you know, if you if you go and type in poverty across London now, you'll get a kind of matrix with, mm. with with every borough and a whole set of indicators. But you don't it doesn't have that level of granularity. It doesn't have that level of persuasiveness uh, that would enable you to to see. Uh, you know the implications of a slum clearance here because you don't you don't have that so you don't see the implications of the actions either. I think that's a really really important. It's a fascinating point. point though. Yeah. It doesn't dramatise what we're living with no. in quite the same no, way. It doesn't. Yeah. As you might have gathered, I'm quite sceptical about colour coded maps and what they can really tell you. Um, I think there's a huge danger of oversimplification. Sort of in answer to that and your point, um, I do think some very good work is currently being done about these issues. I think Dawn Foster of The Guardian is turning out to be an absolutely outstanding uh, journalist on these very issues. Um, would that there were many more of her. I mean, obviously, The Guardian's a huge platform. Um, but And also, um, I, Daniel Blake, one of the wellsprings mm. of its plot is the fact that this... Cockney lady with her kids has had to leave London and go and live somewhere she knows she knows uh, nothing about. I thought that that brought it home. So there is stuff being done, absolutely not enough, and it refers to something that Joseph said in his talk. My feeling strongly is that the gatekeepers of television, radio, the media, it does the the, the, the small village, so, the small social pool from which they are drawn. It's, it's not of great importance to them. It hasn't happened to them probably. It hasn't happened to people they know. Um, it's, very, it's, very, it's a very unboothed lack of curiosity. And you could go further and say it's a lack of compassion because they certainly find the budget and the energy to make endless, endless assaults upon the poor with their benefit street style series. Yeah. Um, and I'm just waiting for the day uh, they go and do a fly on the wall series about what goes on uh, in TV production companies. You know, wouldn't that be fun to watch? I've pitched that one many, many times. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. There is a reluctance to do certain kinds of stories. And in history, the truth is there are some honourable exceptions, but the commissioners really just want to make stories about the royal family and maybe Nazis, wars. maybe the wars. And it's very, very difficult to get any genuine, what they call social history commission. It's, it's an, this series took two years to get off the ground at the BBC. Um, so it's a, it, 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 there are still gatekeepers. And I think Sarah's absolutely right. One of the amazing things is that when you look back at this period, the number of educated upper middle class people who were absolutely prepared to roll up their sleeves and go into those communities and just at least find out about them and we don't have that same level of curiosity amongst our elite today, not no. by any, not, not by long shot. Yeah. Yeah. And just to note before we move on, that there's a very interesting question, the question about both the, yeah. the unconscious origins and the subliminal effects of the, the, the particular colour code. Black streets yeah. being yeah. the vicious yeah. and semi-criminal yes. streets, yeah. So let's take another round. So I'm going to take the, you and you, and then the gentleman there. Right in the middle, yeah. I think we should have time for one more. Um, this might sound like a very simplistic question. and You might have covered it and I missed it, but I'm just curious as to who paid for um, Booth's um, team. He did. He did. Out Booth of his personal family. wealth. Yeah. Which was made how? Uh, shipping. shipping. Oh. But it was about like two, between two and three million then. Mm. 
Wow, really? Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Must have been a pretty rich family. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> which trade, I think. Yeah. Um, my name is Michael Ward. I, I spent, uh, I think, yesterday reading two of Booth's notebooks for two of the dwelling blocks in the, in the East End. Um, I'm working on Beatrice Webb, and I read the books for the note, the manuscript notebooks for two of the block, the two blocks where at different times Beatrice was the, the rent collector. Um, and indeed, in one of those blocks, uh, Margaret Harkness lived for a while, and uh, another person that Beatrice worked with closely, Ella Pycroft, was the other uh, rent collector. Somebody asked a minute ago, could you gather that kind of information now? Actually, you couldn't, and you shouldn't, and it's what all our data protection laws are about, and they're a good thing, and they're right, because you read, and there's also, in, also in the wonderful LSE archive, there is a massive ledger on Catherine Buildings, which is one of those same blocks. You read very detailed material, n name by name, flat by flat, on the tenants, positive and negative information. Uh, Beatrice was not a television journalist, not writing a documentary. Uh, maybe she would have been a hundred years later, who can tell? Uh, but uh, it's one thing to read that material 130 years after it was written. It would be another thing to read it uh, with names and detail. Anybody, if you ever do that kind of work, if you're, if you're ever surveyed, you know nowadays you sign a disclaimer. If you're carrying out research, almost anybody you question about anything has to sign a disclaimer. I don't think you could keep... The, I, these are extraordinary documents with named information, detailed pencil notes, line by line on individuals. You couldn't have that kind of information. Uh, and I think it, it, it's an extraordinary message from the past about the, uh, the information, but actually, I think, even for a journalist to keep it on that scale, the, the level of detail is extraordinary, but I think, actually, data protection legislation is good, and certainly in the hands of some of the anti-welfare state, anti-benefit uh, documentary people, it, it, it is right that we have protection against that kind of thing. Thank you. I, I wanted to know how much... My name is Ike Sindling. I wanted to know how much you know that Booth's map have been actually used for slum clearance and to whose benefit? I thought your map on Aldwych was quite striking because if you look at Kingsway and Aldwych, certainly that's not rehousing the poor. That's a kind of nasty vanity project which is inhumane even by today's standards. So, so I'm wondering if somebody had looked at how much these maps then have been misused really afterwards. Well, yeah. can I start on mm -hmm. I, I mean, I... I wasn't, making, I wasn't trying to make any value judgment there because this is a standard problem of all claims for slum clearance is that it's going to be better, right? And I think that we, we, we talked a bit about this, mm. right? And, uh, um, you know, there's, there's an ethos about it. And clearly there are people who suffer from these slum clearances. Uh, um, and the argument is usually that there's no way of improving the quality of the housing, which is exactly the argument that you, that you found in, in, mm. in this slum clearance. Um, uh, yes, I think it's a vanity project. It's a classic Edwardian. The Old Witch is a classic Edwardian vanity project. Um, and the information I know of a little bit from, from other areas, other studies, is that what happens is the people move to the surrounding areas in this period, not are dispersed 
uh, away yes. from the slave, yeah, yeah. which I think is maybe the mid-19th century would mm. be they'd just be thrown out and then they would just gravitate round to the houses round. I, I don't... I'm not convinced that the booth maps were used yeah. as the basis for slum clearance. Right? I'm, I, I made that connection, but not because I know that the booth maps are made, used like that. The LCC and its predecessor, the Metropolitan Board of Works, had their own actually superior um, maps, um, and you can find them without too much difficulty in the London Metropolitan Archives. So when, when they were setting about their slum clearances, they needed a lot more detail than is on Booth, um, because actually the Booth maps aren't incredibly detailed when you get down to micro, alley, fire hydrant level. So the LCC and the MBW were working with their own maps, and if you like maps, they are absolutely fantastic to to work your way through. Your point about um, data collection, um, you probably know, the printed volumes anonymise absolutely everybody. If you want the real names, and that's how I found about everybody, the real names who lived in the old nickel, you go to the library here, and that's how you find in the notebooks the real names. So he did have an immense level of tact in anonymising everybody um, he, he talked to. Um, yeah. I, I've got a slightly cruder point of view. I, I think if you look at, look, I mean, I think you sent me an amazing piece done by one of your students, which showed was it the area around King's Cross or St um, Pancras? St. St. Pancras when they were clearing that area to build the station, they couldn't go any closer into central London because Parliament was working hard on behalf of the well-to-do people in central London. They didn't want the big termini inside central London, so they had to put them on the periphery. They tore down that area, and they simply, one of the best justifications you can find is just to call it a slum. And actually, I think the, the actual picture was much more yeah. complex. Um, and I think you see it uh, throughout history. You, one of the, where land is scarce, especially in London, the best way to get your own way as a developer is just to simply describe it as a slum and keep lobbying people to think about it in those terms. Your point is incredibly interesting but of course as a TV um, director I'd take a slightly different line which is that um, I recently was um, chatting to a, a woman who wrote a book, I can't remember her name now but she wrote this brilliant book about cohort studies that they've done with babies for over the last seven year, uh, 70 years every baby born in a, in, a, in a single week and then followed those people all the way through to the present day and everyone in the room was saying well of course we can't reveal the identities of these people you know this is confidential and we have these these rules and then I went home that night and they were all on the news talking about all the people in the study <laughs> and you often do find when you actually go and talk to working class people they say yeah you can put my name and they really don't have the same concerns about privacy that other people do and if they don't want to tell you something usually because it's to do with their tax affairs or their past they just don't tell you and that you know so I think sometimes we can be a little oversensitive about it it is such a shame that we aren't going to be able to give this gift to future generations because Charles Booth, whatever the limitations, there's nothing like that anywhere else in the world. I think maybe we can fit just one more question, George. Very quick question. It's not a question, it's an observation. It seems to me, Joseph, I, I work here at the LSE, Joseph has discovered... You've discovered anthropology. <laughs> <laughs> and Is that what it's called? Oh, amazing. And, well, and oddly enough, there's a very famous anthropologist at University College, Mary Douglas, and one of Mary's students, and I think his name was Rob Coppock, wrote a wonderful paper called 
glorious inheritance, glorious architectural inheritance, or rat-infested slum. <laughs> and I think that would have been about 1975. I'll try and dig it out. That'd be sure really interesting. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Well, we've been asked if we'll wrap up very, very um, promptly because of the other, the, the next session. But I just want to conclude by. First of all, thanking all three of you for so absolutely fantastic, really quite gripping um, uh, uh, presentations. And I'd just like to say a little, a little word myself you know, about Booth as somebody who I'm a criminal justice scholar and I'm not an expert on Booth. I've, this has been an incredible learning experience for me over the last few months when, when, when I decided on hearing that it was the centenary of Booth's death in November that we should try and do something at LSE to mark that. Um, and I've had the privilege of, first of all, going to read with Mary some of the notebooks. She already knew them. And I'd like to echo what Sarah said about the incredible way in which the voices come through and they speak to you in the most amazing way. On the other hand, as a criminal justice scholar, I think the maps are also terribly important because those concentrations of poverty, even if they're being rather crudely characterised, we know have all sorts of really bad social effects, um, and including today and in particularly in more segregated societies. So this, this is a, a treasure trove. I'd like to just also plug the collection and the new Booth website. Uh, the curator of the collection, Indy Buller, my colleague from the library, is here. The new website is absolutely fantastic. You can see the maps and then you can click on streets and see where there are notebooks and you can read the, the content of the notebooks. It's, a, it's an absolute treasure trove and it's, it's, it's available to you all. So thank you very, very much for coming um, and thank you again.